2: From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Listen, I know San Francisco is a single city sticking out there in our beautiful Bay, but any honest reading of this place also indicates that San Francisco is the center of a much bigger, broader region. For more than 150 years, people from up in the Delta to far south of the official city boundaries have needed to get up to and around the city of Hills. The transit systems that schemers and civic officials put into place shape nearly everything about the Bay Area that we love and sometimes hate as depicted in a new documentary, Moving San Francisco, premiering tonight on KQED. Today, we'll talk all things city transit, mobility, equity, and the woman who foreshadowed Rosa Parks by a century. That's all next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. As the author Gary Camilla tells us in the new documentary, Moving San Francisco, at its peak in the pre-Bay Bridge 20th century, The Ferry Building was the second busiest transit station in the world, trailing only London's Charing Crossing. As that indicates, San Francisco has long been a crossroads of its region, of California, of the United States, and really of the entire globe. The systems that were developed to move people around shape this place in ways that are so deep it's hard to see them. So we have a panel for you today to excavate the undergirding of this region and reveal the hidden guide wires of the San Francisco Bay Area. Joining us now is Peter Stein, the co director, producer, and writer of Moving San Francisco. Welcome to the show, Peter. It's great to be here. Nice to see you. It's nice to hear you, Alexis. Yes. <laughs> we'll see each other someday. Yeah. Uh, we're also joined by Gary Camilla, the host of Moving San Francisco. He's also the author of Cool Gray City of Love 49 Views of San Francisco and Spirits of San Francisco Voyages Through the Unknown City. Welcome to the show, Gary. It's good to be here, thanks. Yeah, Great to hear from you. And we're also joined by Jeffrey Tomlin, Director of Transportation for the San Francisco Municipal Transportation Agency, or SFMTA, and also uh, a, a major part of this big documentary. Welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you, good morning. Um, Jeffrey, I want to start uh, with a cut from the documentary that features you. Let's uh, Let's just listen in. But from the get-go, the streets of San Francisco
3: laid out by early engineers in a rational grid, have been at war with the
4: landscape.
5: Part of the magic of San Francisco is the absurdity of applying an orthogonal grid atop
2: crazy topography. <laughs> so, Jeffrey, tell me what you meant by this, this magic and this absurdity of applying an orthogonal grid atop crazy topography.
5: Well, San Francisco was laid out so quickly, just before its biggest boom, and nobody really had any time to lay out a rational street system. So uh, Jasper O'Farrell, who was 26 years old at the time, just applied straight streets across the city's topography. And the result of that is the continual unexpected surprise of these long vistas down to the water, through the fog, across the bay. It's you know, wandering around San Francisco on foot, it's always unexpectedly breathtaking, and we owe that to surveying sloppiness uh, in the you know er- early nineteenth century.
2: Wait, so how would that normally have been done then? Like, if it had been done in a more rational, less magical way, what would have happened? <laughs> well, so normally
5: you wouldn't have streets that run up twenty five percent grade. Um, So rather than having streets that just bound over Telegraph Hill and up and over Knob Hill, you follow the contours. You know, streets in cities evolve typically really slowly, following literally cattle tracks. Um, And we have one example of that, which is Columbus Avenue. But for the most part, the streets in San Francisco just completely ignore the reality
2: of the city. Oh, I love Columbus Avenue, so that really reinforces that. <laughs> that for me, um, Jeffrey Stein. You know, any visitor to San Francisco can take a look at a map for thirty seconds and know that Market Street is special without necessarily uh, knowing why. Do you? Do you yourself also? You know, having made this, do you just see Market Street as, as uh, an amazing part of the the city?
6: Um, well, I, I think what's... this is. This is Peter Stein, and and I I want to. Uh, say that um, uh, just as a compliment Peter, to my, my colleague. No, it's fine. Uh, Jeff, Jeff, Jeffrey Tullman, who not only runs a major agency in San Francisco, but is an amazing historian of San Francisco transit as well. Um, when my my colleague Jim Yeager and I set out to to make the film, um, we we did feel that it's not just about um, the transit systems and the you know the magical history of the cable cars and so forth, but it really we wanted to look very at the very um, underlying a grid of the San Francisco streets to figure out what is it that makes this city unusual um, so not only do we uh take a look at that strange topography that um has uh seen a this rational grid laid laid on top of the of of this terrain um but market street itself which was um designed by Jasper O'Farrell to Uh, kind of reconcile two competing grids in the early part of the city. Um, One that goes basically north-south, what we now think of as sort of downtown uh, and the marina, and one that goes uh, sort of diagonal, orthogonal to that, um, south of market. And Jasper O'Farrell laid out this enormous 120-foot wide boulevard in a city that was still, um, basically, as as one of our subjects says in the film, uh, alleys and tiny streets. And uh, the the development of Market Street um, as a major boulevard was um, transformative in the future of what we think of now as the entire downtown. It's a very long run. Um, it's a gentle grade. And as Jeff Tumlin states in the film, the, that long run and that gentle grade has determined the al- almost all of the um, development patterns of, of the city. And that was one of the this sort of where, where the major neighborhoods are, where the streetcar lines go that radiate from Market Street, where we ended up putting BART and Muni underground, um, and now in this latest experiment, where we have now barred vehicles from from uh, other than uh, sort of you know co- commercial and transit vehicles, but barred private vehicles from using Market Street um, in the downtown area. Market Street becomes this kind of um, proving ground for what it means to move people effectively and efficiently around the city. And that's what we try to do in the film is try to peel back some of those taken for granted layers and say, well, how did we get here? And what does it mean for how people use a city? Yeah,
2: and it works. I mean, its it, I've always wondered why Market Street worked exactly the way that it did. And that explanation of sort of. Uh, rectifying the two grids and also the the grading of that particular street. And, and suddenly the whole city's uh, infrastructure is kind of revealed. Um, Gary Camille, I want to uh, play a cut of you in the cable car barn. And the reason is, I feel like this is the other thing that people think of when they think of, of San Francisco transit. You know, they think like, oh, these, this amazing technology. So let's, uh, let's listen in to a, a cut from the documentary Moving San Francisco.
7: This is the powerhouse of the San Francisco cable car barn, the heart and soul of the system. This system is an intricate Rube Goldberg-like contraption with 2,400 moving parts and ample opportunity for things to go wrong. They really have mastered a 19th century technology that is essentially unchanged since Andrew Halliday invented it in 1873.
2: Oh man, so many interesting things that you said in <laughs> just a 30-second cut there. Um but first, is it fair to say that cable cars are your favorite form of San Francisco transit?
7: Yeah, I mean, they're they're unique. They're, <laughs> Lucius Beebe said that they were the most intimate, beloved form of personal trans transportation ever invented. Um they're they're magical. They're, even though they're a cliché and they're almost become sort of a postcard image of San Francisco, uh they're they're just unbeatable they're my favorite in that way they're certainly not my favorite in terms of something that i practically use to get around you know it's a very few there's a few people uh san francisco residents who take the california street line who live in pacific heights and go down to downtown to work that's probably one of the few lines that actually functions practically if you're a san Franciscan. otherwise you take them as a extremely expensive local transit thrill ride. You know, it's almost a, yeah. a Disneyland kind of experience. But no, they're, they're, they're wonderful.
2: I mean, one of the things I love about it is it kind of shows the city is this sort of palimpsest of like different uh, transit technologies and eras. And the other really significant one of those, Gary, is, is the ferries you know, this sort of, which seem both, you know, retro in a sense, because we know that they were much more popular before we had the Bay Bridge, but they're still an amazing way of getting around the city. Oh, absolutely. And I think any, anyone who wasn't, you know,
7: around in the 1930s and 40s and even earlier in their heyday can't help but feel a great uh, nostalgia and a sense of regret That, you know, you weren't around when they were the way that you came to what at that time was called the front door. The Embarcadero, which was called East Street, was called San Francisco's front door. That was the way you came into the city was by water. And uh, people made lifelong friends on the ferries. They really fell in love with that mode of coming into San Francisco and millions of people did it so it they are uh, and they're still an incredibly wonderful way to get around and it puts you in touch with the bay the dominant you know geographical feature of San Francisco so uh, you know I'd love to see the ferries get even more robust they're a wonderful way of moving around.
2: You know, Jeffrey Tellman, sometimes it seems as if the transit system that we ended up with was somewhat inevitable, you know, as a result of technological change or the city's growth. Do you, do you see it that way? Or do you think that the, the, the system we ended up with was sort of more or less accidental?
5: Well, I think it's a combination of, of fortuitous accidents and good planning, um, but it's also a combination of that tight relationship between land use and transit. Every single neighborhood commercial district in San Francisco is there because that's where the streetcars or cable cars used to run. And so the land use pattern of the city reinforces the underlying
2: pattern of historic transit expansion. Yeah. Um, You know, Peter Stein, one of the big issues raised by your film is, is exactly this, this kind of real estate transit nexus. As we go into the break, what do you think you learned from making this documentary about that nexus, that relationship.
6: Well, I think when, when Jim Yeager and I began making the film, we just presumed it was going to be kind of a, in some ways, a celebration of the history of of the how how people got around some of the wonderful technologies like the cable car, and then looking as to why we have so many transit problems now and f- figuring how we're going to innovate our way out of it. But what we learned quickly was in fact that transit didn't really respond to the needs of the city. Transit caused the needs, the needs <laughs> of the city. Uh, the, the fact that cable car lines and streetcar lines were privately owned, often by people who were developing um, great stretches of the city, meant that in fact the reason that we even have certain neighborhoods at all or certain commercial districts is because the transit was planned to go there. And that happens over and over again. East Bay cities expanded because the ferries w- were, were going there in the years before the bridges. Um, and we, of course, we saw, we've seen that with the suburbs aided by the, the commuter uh, travel enabled by, by BART. So that's, I think, was the big takeaway for us in making the film is transit actually is the
0: driver
6: and not simply the passenger of urban development. We're talking about the
2: new documentary, Moving San Francisco, which premieres tonight on KQED-TV at 9 p.m. with Peter Stein, co-director, producer, and writer of Moving San Francisco, Gary Camilla, who hosts the documentary, and Jeffrey Tumlin, director of transportation for SFMTA. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new documentary, Moving San Francisco, about the city's past and present modes of transportation, with Peter Stein, co-director, producer, and writer of Moving San Francisco, which premieres tonight on KQD at 9 p.m. We also have Gary Camilla, who hosted the documentary. He's the author of Cool Gray City of Love, 49 Views of San Francisco, and Spirits of San Francisco, Voyages Through the Unknown City. We're also joined by Jeffrey Tomlin, Director of Transportation with SF. M T A. We want to know what questions do you have about San Francisco's transit history? And we're about to talk about some on the ground activism. And so we're curious, were you involved with the so called freeway revolt? Or do you remember when they took down the Embarcadero Freeway or the Cypress structure in West Oakland? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Or you can email your questions or comments about San Francisco Transit to forum at kqed.org. So, uh, Peter Stein, I did want to ask you about the sort of activism on the ground as this other sort of shaping factor, along with, you know, the city's topography, the technology that's available, the real estate speculators. How do you see that as sort of the, you know, grassroots or grass tops kind of um, activism shape in the city?
6: Uh, It's a great question. And again, one that we sort of discovered as we did more of the research that um, transit has become... Um, a, a battleground for uh, questions of social equity. And we think, of course, of Rosa Parks being the symbol of what it means to um, sort of stand up for your right to ride. Um, but we found this extraordinary story, for example, in the, in the 1860s of a not so well-known um, African-American woman uh, in San Francisco, Mary Ellen Pleasant, who 90 years before Rosa Parks actually sued a private trolley company uh, because she'd been thrown off of um, actually not one, but two uh, different uh, streetcar lines. And she used the courts. Um, Again, this is just in the years right after the civil war had concluded uh, in San Francisco to uh, claim her right as a black woman uh, to uh, freely move about the city. So transit becomes this kind of Proving ground over and over again for what it means for citizens to uh, be able to exercise their their rights to move about a city. Um, you mentioned well, Peter. Your... We actually have yeah, um, we have a cut. Uh, from your documentary
2: about Mary Ellen Pleasant, this African-American entrepreneur, one of the wildest things that the documentary points out is that she'd actually uh, um, amassed quite an empire in early San Francisco to the point where in today's dollars, she was able to send a million dollars to John Brown, uh, the, the radical abolitionist. So a Totally fascinating story. So let's listen in on historian Aaliyah Dunn-Salahuddin on Pleasant's story.
1: This trial is significant for several reasons. One, she understands that her legitimacy as a black woman in the 1860s in San Francisco is not really enough to win the case. And this is not even about the money for Mary Ellen Pleasant. It's about setting a legal precedent, understanding that this case would set the tone for civil rights in the Bay Area and across the nation. So this is very strategic on her part and a part of a larger assault against racial injustice in San Francisco.
2: Gary, Kamia, I feel like I think of you as the person who knows like everything about San Francisco history. <laughs> did you, did you know the Mary Ellen Pleasant story and, and uh, how can we get more recognition for this pretty remarkable uh, bit of activism and entrepreneurship?
7: Yeah, I actually did, did know about this story. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, Allison Lovejoy, who's a wonderful pianist and composer, actually wrote a song uh, based on Mary Ellen Pleasant's life and with, you know, referring to this episode. And I'd studied her a little bit. She's an extremely interesting figure, very controversial. But yeah, I mean, she's, it, she deserves to be much better known because as Peter said, uh, this is groundbreaking stuff, 1866. I mean, this just wasn't happening. So, so she was an extraordinary human being, and really deserves to be much
6: better known. Yeah. If I can Jeffrey, tell me. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Just quickly add uh, sort of the, the 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 kicker to the to her lawsuit. While the California courts basically ruled in her favor and said, "Yeah, um, they threw you off because you were black, and you can't do that." Um, she actually was smart enough to to try to sue for damages. Literally, the term emotional distress was used in, in, her, in her lawsuit. And originally, that was, it was found in her favor. She was awarded $500 um, for the stress of being um, uh, discriminated against. And uh, what was unfortunate was that when the trolley companies appealed the the decision up to the California Supreme Court, of course, then all white men, Um, they said, well, yeah, you shouldn't have been thrown off, but we don't think those damages are appropriate. So we're going to just ask the trolley companies to refund your fare since you were not allowed to complete your ride, but no way is the special damages. And so it it basically removed all the teeth from that ruling. And that wasn't rectified in California until 1893. And of course, not rectified uh, nationwide until the 1950s and 60s.
2: You know, Jeffrey Tomlin... um Director of Transportation as FMTA. You know, you run this agency. So what's your relationship to people who are, for example, putting lots of pressure on you about particular bus lines or about the the nature of the service that you're able to provide to to citizens?
8: Well, the struggle with transportation in San
2: Francisco is always about how do we provide
5: the best possible service given our limited resources? And that is particularly true now uh, as we face the worst financial crisis uh, in our agency's history and a widening structural deficit. So we've been uh, engaged in several months of intensive community engagement about how to prioritize what lines do we bring back first? And also, how do we deal with the fact that travel behavior has changed dramatically as a result of COVID? Yeah,
2: Um, you know, Peter Stein, want to talk a little bit about uh, a slightly different kind Uh, of activism, the so-called freeway uh, revolt. And why don't you just set up sort of what was happening in San Francisco such that citizens had to sort of band together to say, actually, maybe we don't want freeways running throughout the entire city
6: yeah well um the, the the whole nation was becoming uh, infatuated with the automobile and the independence um, that that granted uh, and all of transit planning in the 18 in the 1930s 40s and 50s were all about making room in cities for um the primacy of the automobile um, and san francisco uh, and the transit uh, planners built major bridges which we love uh, coming into the city and um, then in the, uh, I think it was 1950 or 1951, uh, revealed the uh, Transit Ways Plan, which basically was designed to bring um, suburban commuters um, swiftly and easily to all parts of the city and revealed. Um, No fewer than 11 freeways planned to um, move across town, around the Embarcadero, through Glen Canyon Park, out the Panhandle, you name it. Every neighborhood was going to be faced with um, a towering above ground structure to bring cars um, in and out of, of the city's corners. And San Francisco was among the very first cities to spark essentially a grassroots um, revolt to say, we think this is going to wreck our neighborhood. And that was the beginning of the freeway revolt movement um, in the mid to late 50s. Yeah. And
2: then, you know, really seemed to get a a lot of, of juice later on as freeways really started to come down
6: yes um what f- first there's the effort to simply block freeways, uh, which did happen in the Panhandle uh, a- among activists there, and in Glen Park, which is the the freeway revolt that we happen to cover in the in the film um, A very different kind of movement has happened more recently, um, which is really trying to take a look at some of the inherent injustices the the inequities in a whole a battery of transit planning, from where we've put freeways to where we've run uh, light rail lines and uh, c- a commuter rail, um, because inevitably um, the communities with less voice, less power, um, BIPOC, uh, poorer communities um, have been subject to um, basically housing or being the sort of being overrun by the the transit systems that serve. Wealthier and usually wider communities, and so what? What now has happened is that there's efforts to say we need to take these um, systems out, um, and it's it's a it's a new way of thinking about how we move forward equitably. One of the big, um, the great examples of that has been what happened with Loma Prieta earthquake when the central freeway that ran right through Civic Center area was damaged, and Um, Hayes Valley, which had been covered up and shattered, and anybody who was here before 1989 remembers both that and the Embarcadero Freeway as being, while for transit, very convenient, um, very sort of oppressive to the neighborhoods that they sliced through. And because of the earthquake damage, those freeways came down and quite literally sunlit um, these marvelous uh, areas of San Francisco. Yeah.
2: Let's bring in caller Helen from San Carlos. Welcome to the show.
3: Hi. Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, sure can, Helen. Go ahead.
3: Okay. Great. Thanks. I want to speak to the comment that was just made about the freeways coming down. I have worked at the same job in Civic Center since 1986, and I was uh, I lived in San Francisco when I got the job, but I later moved to San Carlos, and I've been a commuter for decades, and I used to take the central freeway, and it dropped me off. At uh, Golden Gate and Franklin, and I drove a half a block to my office. And so, when that freeway came down after um, after the 89 quake, I was disappointed. But what happened in Hayes Valley was truly remarkable. It really, really opened up the area. And the same thing, even more dramatically, happened when the Central, uh, the Embarcadero freeway came down, which I used occasionally to come from North Beach around to get, get onto the freeway to go home. And it had the most magnificent view of the Bay Bridge and the Bay and the East Bay, and it came down. And then that whole waterfront became like a European city. It just, it just was a dramatic and remarkable change for the better. And I've always been like, oh, freeways are great to get to work, but they cause, um, you know, blight in a lot of ways. So yeah. it was good they came down.
2: So you've come around on it then?
3: Oh, absolutely.
2: Ahead. Thank you so much, Helen from San Carlos. We're talking about the new documentary, Moving San Francisco, which premieres tonight, mm-hmm. 9 p.m. on KQD TV. It's about the city's past and present modes of transportation. We're joined by Peter Stein, co-director, producer, and writer of Moving San Francisco. Gary Camilla, host of Moving San Francisco. Jeffrey Tumlin, director of transportation with SF. MTA. And I'd like to add Chanel Fletcher, the Deputy Executive Officer of Environmental Justice with the California Air Resources Board into our conversation. Welcome, Chanel.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here.
2: So you're also in the documentary and you have a a great line where you say like, you know, we can dismantle these systems that are doing things we don't want them to do um, in our neighborhood. So if we, what are the other systems that when you look across the way that, you know, San Francisco and the Bay Area move around, like what else should be dismantled?
1: That's a really great question. And I think one of the things that I would say, um, so I think we've talked about freeways, that being kind of a system of oppression. I think this is a really important space to kind of almost pause and think about, well, who is the ones that are identifying and saying, um what is oppressive, right? Like, I think that's the point for me is that depending on where you are and where you're at and what you're looking at, certain things can feel very oppressive, right? Like I'm sure, for example, depending on how you get around and how you move things like, you know, like Lyft or Uber, or even like when we talk about AV technology, that could bring the fear. Autonomous
2: vehicles, yeah.
1: Exactly, thank you. Autonomous vehicles. That can bring about that fear of like, well, wait, is this going to work for me? Is this meant for me? How is this going to benefit me? I mean, I think that's why in in the documentary, I really talk about our bottom line it just can't be, for example, you know, reducing GHG or greenhouse gas emissions, right? For example, for CARB, we really do think about you know, climate change and GHG emissions, which are greenhouse gas emissions, and we think about how do we reduce those, but that can't be our only bottom line. We really do need to be thinking about equity, and we need to be clear and transparent about what equity is, because that's become a buzzword. So we've all heard about racial equity, gender equity, social equity what are we talking about when we're talking about equity? What does that mean? And how does that then operationalize and shape what we are doing and what we are moving out? And so when we're looking at things through an equitable lens, then you can start to clearly identify this could be oppressive to this community if we're not thinking about these different pieces here. This on the other hand could be very beneficial if we incorporate these pieces here so i think i would just say that it's a big question to identify for like the bay area right like (laughs) what could be oppressive um and so i think that's where it comes into play of us really thinking about and talking about what do we mean by equity how do we have an equity lens and how is that really in partnership with communities
2: yeah well luckily we have jeffrey tumlin right here to ask how do you interpret your uh, role? How do you use an equity lens at SFMTA, particularly now, given that that every transit system has been hit so hard by the pandemic? So now you've got to make hard decisions. You put the equity lens on, and, and what do you see?
5: Well, if the goal of public infrastructure is to make sure that everyone in the public has equal access to opportunity, equity forces us to ask the question, how do we correct for the disinvestment that transportation infrastructure has forced upon particularly communities of color, but also disabled people or children or the elderly? So during the pandemic, as we struggled with the loss of over half of muni service, we also created a new transit line that was never there before, the 15 Bayview Hunters Point Express, which we co-designed with the Hunters Point community. Hunters Point is the only San Francisco neighborhood that has never, had a one-seat ride to downtown San Francisco. And by fixing that, uh, we quadrupled the number of career ladder jobs that are accessible in a 30-minute transit community to Hunters Point residents. And we did this in collaboration with the community. This was their number one request in the Bayview uh, community-based transportation plan. So equity is about engaging with community, finding out what people need, and then following through on your promises in order to equalize opportunity. Yeah.
2: Peter one of the points of your documentary, among many, seems to be that public agencies are accountable to the public in a way that like private companies like your Ubers, your Lyfts, or in the, in the past, these sort of private uh, streetcar companies just cannot produce equitable outcomes in the same way because they're not democratically accountable. Am I, am I uh, making
6: too strong a version of this argument? No, no. I think you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, uh, one of again, one of the sort of revelations for for me and and for, for Jim Yeager making the film was, um, first of all, realizing that all of transit in the first 50, 60 years of the developed city of San Francisco um, were private. They, these, were, this, these were real estate, real estate um, electricity companies um, basically benefiting from uh, the vertical integration and saying, oh yeah, we can we can run a streetcar line and we're gonna need to buy our, our electricity from us. Um, and public accountability for transit and public ownership of transit as the sort of default assumption of what a city transit agency is. That started, that whole concept of municipally owned transit started in San Francisco in 1907 with the effort to compete against these private systems and have a city owned, municipally owned transit system. San Francisco was like 30 years ahead of New York in municipalizing its transit. Um, That said, now what's so interesting is that there's no way that public agencies can do all of this by themselves. And so the era of public private partnership is that we're right we're right in the middle of it i mean we just had facebook sorry the the company formerly known as facebook (laughs) um invest a million dollars into sort of um r&d about what a you know southern crossing bridge might look like because they as a private you know, employer needed to figure out how are our employees going to get to, to Menlo park. Uh, and so there you've got a private company figuring out, should we build the bridge, which is really the private enterprise um, speculating into the public sector in a way that yeah, shades of the Bay area council of the mid century
2: though, too. Yeah. We're, we're talking yeah. about the new documentary moving San Francisco with the director, co-director, producer, and writer, uh, Peter Stein, Gary Camilla, who hosted it. Jeffrey Tumlin, Director of Transportation with SFMTA, and Chanel Fletcher, Deputy Executive Officer of Environmental Justice at the California Air Resources Board. Broadcast premiere of Moving San Francisco is tonight, Monday, November 22nd. That's tonight, 9 p.m., KQED-TV. And we do want to hear from you. What questions do you have about San Francisco transit history? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. And get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or the emails forum at KQED.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
2: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the new documentary, Moving San Francisco, with its co-director Peter Stein, Toast, Gary Camilla, Jeffrey Tumlin, uh, director of transportation at SFMTA, and Chanel Fletcher, deputy executive officer of environmental justice with California Air Resources Board. We have an an awesome comment that I just wanted to read. Uh, Linda writes, It is well within living memory that the cable cars would not allow women to ride on the outside. I must have been about 14 in the early 60s when the conductor told me that I could not ride there. It wouldn't have been so bad if he had found me a seat, but he just made me get off and left me behind. Camille, that's true, right?
7: You know, I had not known that. Um, that's pretty That's. I mean, it doesn't totally surprise me uh, because that kind of retrograde uh, thinking and behavior lasted a lot longer than we'd like to think it would. But I didn't actually know that particular fact. I will say, and uh, there's a wonderful story that also involves, you know, equity for women on the cable car, which was on the very first day that the system operated a uh, the, the, the franchise run, they call it. They had to, you know, make their, their first fair runs. And the, the cable, this is 1873, and they're crowded with men, of course, there's no women. And one woman just follows the cable car. She's like trying to get on. She can't get on. It's too crowded. Finally, some chivalrous men allow her to get on. She pulls out a nickel, puts it in the slot and says, now for the rest of my life, I will know that I was the first woman to ride a cable car. So uh, it's a kind of a, a sweet story uh, on the other side of that. But that's uh, quite uh, quite disappointing that, it, that as recently as the early 60s, uh, it was too f- dangerous for women to be on the outside of a cable car.
2: Yeah. Jeff Tomlin, do you know do you know anything about this story by any chance? Uh,
5: I don't, although I do know that uh, SFMTA board director uh, Manny Cudial, um has been concerned about when he's riding around in a short skirt on his Vespa, whether that uh, might be accused of uh, engaging in unladylike behavior. <laughs>
2: uh, let's get a couple other uh, really, really uh, interesting kind of let's call it a potpourri of transit questions here. Um, we've got Judd. Judd writes, years ago, my brother was in San Francisco on transportation business matters. We toured the amazing mind boggling cable car barn. I found out that the wood brakes were still in use and had to be changed out every three to four days. Is that still true? Gary Camilla.
7: Oh, absolutely. That was my, probably one of the the greatest day during the wonderful filming with uh, Jim Yeager and Peter Stein's film. Uh, was the day that we went to the cable car barn and the cable cars had not been running during COVID and they took the cars out for us to film. And I got to ride with a wonderful Gritman named Cedric, who like just told me everything he was doing second to second. I felt like I was in a Mississippi riverboat with Mark Twain. And, uh, And he was just showing me that he's freewheeling now, he's not connected to the cable. When he picks up the cable... And then I asked him, what's that big, you know, what's that big lever? Um, You know, is that the grip? And he goes, oh, no, that's the brake. And I said, well, how does the brake work? And he shows me that the brake is connected to a two by four. It's like something you could get out of a wood scrap heap. And when you pull the lever, it physically presses down on the track. The friction of the two by four slows down the cable car, which is the most wonderfully low tech thing in a city like San Francisco imaginable. It's just a, it's it's a wondrously kind of absurdly old fashioned device and it, and it works and they do have to change them out all the time. And that's why you get that wonderful
2: campfire smell when you're, when the cable cars are breaking. I- I honestly, when I was watching the documentary, I was like, that cannot actually be true. But it's clearly true. That is, And it just speaks to that uh, the nature of that system as being developed in the 19th century. And hey, if it's not broke, why uh, why fix it? Um, we want to bring in uh, caller John from San Francisco into our conversation. Welcome, John.
8: Hi, how are you? Good, good. I, um, I have three points here. It's just like One is the closure of the market streets. And I don't understand. When you close market streets, where do you expect those cars to go? So now there is a lot of traffic on mission streets. And they're causing a lot of problems, wear and tears on mission streets. Besides, those merchants now are closing their stores because there is no cars coming through. And no pedestrians, people, I mean, it's like only a muni and, and, and bicycles are on market streets now. The other point is, why are we closing some of the streets on the residential areas where, where 20% of San Francisco are disabled? They need to drive to get wherever they want to go, or maybe driven by a taxi or by a friend or loved one. Everything is being closed. I don't understand. When you close one street, that means there is a, another tra- traffic problem from them, the one next from that, the one you closed. Thank you.
2: Hey, John, thank you so much. Um, you know, Jeffrey Tomlin, I feel like this one is for you. Um, let's go kind of in reverse order. Let's talk about um, the Slow Streets program first, uh, and then we'll get to uh, Market Street with you and Chanel.
5: So during COVID, San Francisco has implemented 45 miles, what we call Slow Street. These are, you know, low volume residential streets where we've asked that motor vehicles slow down and not travel, you know, through multiple blocks. But our slow streets welcome everyone. Everyone's welcome to drive on slow streets. You can walk and bike and you're expected to be able to walk in the middle of the street. None of them are closed to car traffic. Um, but we ask that people uh, be respectful of each other and share the street graciously. Uh, and it's resulted in a, about a decrease in injury crashes on those streets and huge increases in walking and biking. They've also been enormously popular uh, over 70% popular on average and over 90% popular uh, on some of our key corridors, which is arguably the most popular thing the SSMTA has ever done.
2: (laughs) You know, uh, Chanel, as we come to, we can, we can include slow streets in this as well, but also the closure of market street and kind of this, some of the more radical maneuvers that we're trying to make to change the way that transportation works. They're going to move away from the status quo of essentially uh, streets are for cars. W- one of the hardest things, it's like we know that in the nearish future that we're going to be energy constrained, we're going to be carbon constrained, and we know that we can't be dependent on individual automobiles, electric or not, autonomous or not. And yet we're kind of any change to the status quo also, as Carler John rightfully indicated, is gonna disrupt things. So from your perspective, how do we kind of pull that climate-friendly future kind of closer to us? And 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 how do we understand dealing with those stat the the with breaking the status quo and the problems that will come with it?
1: This is a great question and I and I love what this caller was discussing because I think we all feel frustration when change happens, right? So it's like, wait a second, I'm so used to taking this road to do this thing and now you're changing it, you're disrupting it, what's the point, what's the purpose? And I think a previous caller had actually mentioned this, so I'm going to go back to her point where she had talked about, you know, I used to drive that freeway on Hayes Valley, I used to drive that freeway on the Embarcadero, right? I was used to that, it it made sense to me, you know. The commute, you know, it's fine. And then I think when they were removed, it was a shock, right? But then I think what we also saw, I mean, she literally said it's like now you have this beautiful, like European city in the middle of San Francisco that everyone can access, right? And I think it's the same thing for Hayes Valley. And so I think to me, it's always about pointing to the collective vision that we want to get to, and I think that is what is important here, is that I think exactly as Jeffrey had said we have to remember that streets are not just meant for cars and that sometimes I think is a shock in and of itself but streets are meant for us to be walking we're meant to be biking we're meant to be moving and when we have that collective vision that okay we're not just building these kind of like streets and these roads for us to drive on and for us to get to point a to point a to point b but for us actually to enjoy where we live where we work where we play to actually take in like whether it's the waterfront, whether it's the playground, I mean, I think those are the things that everybody wants, right? Nobody, nobody wants to have a street where you drive like 50 miles an hour and you're scared to walk with your kids on it, right? So I, I just think that that collective vision, that's what we point to, sustainability, equity. How do we all have access and what does that look like and mean and how do we shape that? I think that's something that we have to keep in mind as we're making these radical changes. And that's what we need to be sharing with the public and know that like there probably will be frustration. And I think as we start to see the the benefits of it, we're going to actually start to hear people say, wow, I didn't think of it this way. But now I see it completely differently.
2: Let's bring in Peter from San Francisco into the conversation. Welcome, Peter.
0: Yes, Thank you very much for this program. It sounds fascinating, especially how the neighborhoods bloom when the speed or the freeways go away. Uh, And we know speed kills from other uh, discussions. So what's going on with Van Ness, which I think is a disaster? Uh, Everything has been made for supposedly for speed. Uh, Every single entry to public transit is going to have to be on an island in the middle of a very busy, rapid highway. And then on top of it, they've got fast-moving traffic literally inches away from pedestrians right along the curb. So how how do you justify that in terms of the benefits that presumably would be lost as the street becomes pedestrian highly unfriendly?
2: Yeah. Thanks, Peter, from San Francisco. Uh, Jeffrey Tumlin, I think this one's for you.
0: Yeah, so we're in the
5: final stages of wrapping up the Venice Bus Rapid Transit Project. Uh, which delivers a fast, frequent, reliable north-south transit line uh, across San Francisco. Uh, and we will share that with Golden Gate Transit for connections on into Marin and Sonoma counties. Um, so by moving the buses to the center, uh, we get buses not only out of traffic, but away from cars that are queuing to turn right. So the Venice Project is really about uh, transit prioritization. Uh, And, of course, the boarding islands uh, are in the center of the street, but uh, because of our real-time information, pedestrians who don't want to wait on the island that's protected by steel barriers, they can continue to wait at the curb and then just cross um, when the bus is coming.
2: Uh, Peter Stein, Gary Camilla, the... uh co-director and host, respectively, of Moving San Francisco, which uh, premieres tonight on KQED, 9 p.m. I wanted to get your your take on what's the thing that documentary documentarians in 30 years will look back on this era that we're in and they'll say like, oh, that that was really the thing that ended up shaping the city like that change in transit led to changes X, Y and Z in how this region works. Uh, Peter Stein, let's start with you and then we'll go to you, Gary.
6: Oh, boy, you're asking me to prognosticate. I, <laughs> I love looking backwards, because it's already <laughs> happened. Um, uh, I would say um, w- w- there are a couple of key developments that we're right in the middle of. It's a little hard to get perspective on how they will shape um, wh- you know, who we are. Um, one of them is something that at least I in my neighborhood of Bernal Heights am aware of 12 times a day, which is the constant um, passing by of these autonomous vehicles that are mapping every corner and every obstacle and every um, sort of real-time incident. Um, so that uh, you know, dr- driverless vehicles can be um, going through the streets of San Francisco, which I think many people feel is oppressive and, and unwelcome but I, I do think it's going to be a bit of a uh, of an earthquake well maybe that's the wrong term to use but I think it will be it will shape um, how things work in the Bay Area possibly for better, possibly for worse certainly the convenience factor is huge um, but it will um, likely cause uh, a lot more um, traffic uh, on the streets unless we um, find a way to um, make autonomous um, high high passenger vehicles like autonomous buses and so forth Mm -hmm. um, available. So I think we might look back and say that, you know, 2021, 2020, and next year are kind of the years where this, um, you know, the autonomous vehicle uh, in presence in the streets of San Francisco became almost a fait accompli. I I do think they're coming. It's not like we can turn that around. Um, That's one key thing. And I'll, I'll just mention one other one, which is we need to solve the, um, the problem of 27 independent agencies in the in the Bay Area all kind of competing for turf and having it be very difficult to make large scale collective decisions as Chanel was pointing to that for, for the public good for the larger region. It's an extremely yeah. balkanized mm-hmm. um, bureaucratically encumbered um, set of agencies that we have here that make it very difficult to make big moves like bringing high-speed rail into San Francisco or even building the Transbay Terminal so that it can accommodate all the modes of transit. It's a wonderful building, but it doesn't really serve all of the needs. So I think those two areas are really big.
2: Gary, Camille, what do you think?
6: Well, this might be more of a hope
7: than a prognostication, but I'd I'd like to see that the slow streets, uh, in some cases closed streets movement, in combination with other urban developments especially regarding zoning uh, with greater density with transit oriented development um, we're in danger of having our cities becoming hollowed out of them losing what makes them cities losing their retail losing their walkability and i think that if you uh, maximize the pedestrian elements of of cities while also making them more dense that creates more businesses, more walkability. It fights the Amazonification, if you will, of cities. But they, it all has to happen in concert with each other. If you simply have you know, closed streets, but you don't change the zoning patterns, then the cities are in danger of continuing to empty out and become non-cities, where everybody's ordering everything on phones remotely, which does not make it a city where people interact with each other. So I would say that combined with, robust, with a combination of robust public transportation, and as Peter uh, mentioned, you know the driverless cars and even the Ubers and Lyfts, that, that model is clearly here to stay as well, and it has its place, but it, it needs to complement a far more robust uh, public transit system and greater density in our cities. And then I think we'll hopefully make cities cities again.
2: Yeah. Jeffrey, tell if you were politically unconstrained, what's a big change that you'd make at SFMTA, or in our oh. region generally? Uh, so many changes. Uh, well,
5: I would regulate the public right of way for the public good. Um, right now, most of the basic street safety tools that work everywhere else in the world are illegal in California. Uh, right now, because we Americans confuse Uh, our freedom with the freeness of of mobility. Um, We give the public right-of-way away to for-profit mobility companies that waste that space for the convenience of the privileged. Uh, I would argue that our democracy is dependent upon us all believing that we have something in common, that we have uh, shared values. And the last great place, for us to recognize our common humanity with our other, other city dwellers on city sidewalks and on the public bus. Um, we need to make sure that the public right-of-way is upheld as the public commons in a place where we all come together and as a refuge from the tribalism of social media.
2: Yeah. You know, Kathleen commenter writes, just you know, a, a dissenting view on the Embarcadero Freeway. I've never actually heard this one. The removal of the waterfront freeway may have made a great community for residents and visitors and workers, but it destroyed one of the great views in the world from all except those with money to live in Waterview apartments or in Waterview offices. It was elitist. Um, of course, you could always... Go walk down there. and It's a great place. Uh, we have been talking about the new documentary, Moving San Francisco, about the city's past and present modes of transportation with Jeffrey Tumlin, director of transportation with the SFMTA, Chanel Fletcher, deputy executive officer of environmental justice with the California Air Resources Board, and two of the people deeply involved in the production of the documentary, Peter Stein, co-director, producer, and writer of Moving San Francisco, and Gary Camilla, host of moving san francisco who's also the author of two great books cool gray city of love 49 views of san francisco and spirits of san francisco voyages through the unknown city thank you all so much
1: thank you alexis great to be here thank you so much
2: thank you chanel uh just so you know the broadcast premiere of moving san francisco tonight 9 p.m on kqed tv I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead of Forum with Leslie McClurg.
4: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons
1: Foundation.